Well, good morning again. It's good to, to be with you. Um, so this past week, um, I was listening to a podcast. Um, some of you might be saying, what's a podcast? Well, I don't really know. It's like this thing on the internet, and they, they have a segment that they post every once in a while, and then it shows up on your phone or on your computer, and you can listen to it. And it has some interesting stuff. But it's just kind of this, this audio message, and usually it involves a couple people. Anyway, one came up on my, my computer. I listened to it this week. It, had, it, it, it introduced me to a book with an interesting title and one that, one that pertains to me. The title of the book was Lies My Preacher Told Me, <laughs> an honest look at the Old Testament. Uh, and, and as I listened to the interview, I was, I was struck. It struck me that we're in this series in Lent, and we're, we're talking, we're focusing on passages from the Old Testament. So the, this author in his book, each chapter represented a, a new lie that, that preachers, you know, tell people and or mistruth or misunderstanding <laughs> and, and, and I thought well I'll have to read it and see which chapters are me you know like eh, a little bit of four a little sick whoa seven's definitely me you know I don't know I don't know the book I, I ordered it but I haven't read it yet so anyway maybe I'll get to the end of our series and and, and correct some of the <clears throat> some of the lies I, I hope I don't lie to you I don't think I lie to you <clears throat> but I bring that up in order uh, today in order to say <clears throat> the Old Testament is really, really important. Uh, I, I tend to, and I enjoy preaching from, from the Gospels. Um, and, and I think that for, for many of us, or for most of us, the New Testament might seem more directly applicable to our lives. But we do our faith a disservice to neglect the Old Testament, I believe. I believe we, we do our faith a disservice to neglect the Old Testament as a source of guidance, as a source of, of theology, as a source of truth <clears throat> in our lives. And I was reminded as I listened to the podcast that, that in 2 Timothy, there's a great passage, a, 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 a well-known passage that talks about uh, where, where Paul instructs his, his pupil, Timothy, and he says, all scripture is God-breathed, useful for and it lists the four things, teaching and rebuking and correcting and training. Anybody familiar with that, that text in 2 Timothy? What was he talking about there? This is a New Testament writer talking about the Jewish text, talking about the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the wisdom literature, the writings of the prophets. <clears throat> well, it makes sense that many New Testament writers, they didn't know they were writing the Bible, and say, I'm going to sit down and write the Bible today. No, that's not what they did. But, but they worked hard at, at helping to frame their writing with Old Testament references and, and Old Testament imagery. But what's primary? What's primary is that the Old and New Testaments together form the Word of God for us, that we come to Scripture. Uh, as we come to Scripture, the Holy Spirit, who, who we believe and trust, helped these writers to, to craft these writings, and to write the Old and New Testament, we believe that same Holy Spirit is with us as we look to the Scriptures and helps us to understand and interpret and to learn, faithful to guide us, help it come alive for us in our lives. <clears throat> so we ask for God's provision in the hearing and the understanding 
of the truth of Scripture. I hope that as you open up the book, as you read Scripture, you're asking the Holy Spirit for guidance and help in learning and understanding. We believe the Spirit was there as it was written, and the Spirit is here with us today to help us learn and to interpret. Um, and, and, I, and I bring this up for kind of a, a specific reason today. If you become accustomed to the lectionary cycle, I know some of you do this. Some of you peek ahead to the, to the scripture reference passages, and you know why I'm talking about that this week. This, the passage that we're, we're turning to this week is a unique one. It's probably not one I would choose, you know, but it's not my fault. It's chosen for me. I said we're going to stick with the Old Testament, and, and here it comes. Some, sometimes the lectionary does this. Um, sometimes it's like a real convicting passage, and I can be like, I'm sorry, this is what it told me to preach. And today I'm, I'm sorry, Trent, this is what it told me to preach. So um, Lent, uh, we, we've talked in, in these Old Testament texts about how God interacts with humanity, and that's kind of the theme, that, that there's times when God steps in and says, I'm going to make a covenant with humanity. I'm going to put my bow in the sky. I'm going to turn from this violent response. We talked about that in, the, in Noah's covenant as he came out of the ark. We talked about the covenant with Abram, who became Abraham, that, that he would become the father of many nations. And, and God struck covenant with Abraham and said, you will be the father of the group that will be called my people. Last week we talked about the Ten Commandments uh, and, and this, this code of, of ethical behavior, this this, this this understanding between God and humanity of, of this is how you live a God-centered life. Today we're turning to Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, um, for, for a, a section of scripture that's, that's a little different, but um, starting in verse 4 and reading through verse 9, we'll be reading from Numbers chapter 21 today. Out of reverence for the reading of God, God's word, I invite you to stand as we read from the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. They, mar they marched from Mount Hor on the Reed Sea Road around the land of Edom. The people became impatient on the road. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why did you bring us up from Egypt to kill us in the desert, where there is no food or water, and we detest this miserable bread? So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit the people. Many of the Israelites died. The people went to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we spoke against the Lord and you. Pray to the Lord so that he will send the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous snake and place it on a pole. Whoever is bitten can look at it and live. Moses made a bronze snake and placed it on a pole. If a snake bit someone, that person could look at the bronze snake and live. It's the word of God given to us, the people of God. We say thanks be to God that we're not the preacher. Uh, you can have a seat. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Like I said, though, it's kind of a tough text. It's kind of this, this weird text. Um, and certainly this text is, is included in the lectionary cycle really for one reason. Um, and, and Tom shared that reason for us when he read from the Gospel of John. John, John chapter 3, verse 14 through 15 said this, Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, 
I don't know what imagery came to your mind when he said that. I don't even know if you listened to that part. <laughs> it's like the first words, and, and, and you kind of skip over it. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. You know, we, we talk, we get, sometimes our, our attention gets distracted from the parts that we don't really have a frame of reference for understanding. And if, you, if you're not familiar with this story in the Old Testament of, of Moses raising up this serpent, this snake, then as you read that New Testament line, you kind of like, I don't get that. Oh, we're talking about eternal life. <laughs> and then we get to John 3.16, and everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever should believe in him will have everlasting life. Oh, we like that part. But what about this weird part of Moses lifting up a snake? Now, an easy way to talk about this is to just talk about the New Testament references, the New Testament implications of this passage. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking in John chapter 3. He's speaking to Nicodemus. In the, in, in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus has this interesting arc where he's, he's known in the Jewish community. He's a, uh, a Jewish, um, or, or uh, sorry, he, he's, a, he's in the Roman community, and, and he shows up several times through, um, through the Gospel. But Jesus says the human one is lifted up. And the human one's a, a common reference in the Gospel of John for, for Jesus. We need to lift Jesus high in our lives and look to him. And Jesus brings salvation. Jesus will save us. Jesus is the New Testament version of the snake that's lifted up. And he saves us from our, the snakes of our sin, which seek to bite us and destroy us. Amen. Let's go home. No, no, wait. Just a minute. I have more. Um, that's a great New Testament framing of the imagery that I think John wanted to talk about in that gospel. But that's not a great reading of the Old Testament, that we can't just get rid of the Old Testament. Sometimes it might be easier. Sometimes it might be more convenient. But today I want to dive into the Old Testament side of this story because I don't want to strip the Old Testament of what it brings to the table as far as our scriptures, as far as the word of God, as far as what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us. Because we believe in the whole tenor of scripture from beginning to end. And we have to deal with the Old Testament as the Old Testament. We're faced here with the Israelite nation again who is struggling out in the desert. They don't like it there. If you haven't caught on in to anything, uh, as, the, as the Israelite nation is wandering through the desert, they're not really happy about this scenario, okay? Last, last week, we did a quick survey of, of Exodus. If you remember Exodus 16 and 17, they were complaining about food. Food showed up. They were complaining about water. Food shows up. Well, we get to the Ten Commandments, and, and what did we get? We got 20 chapters in Exodus and 27 chapters in Leviticus uh, of the code, of the law, of this understanding of how the relationship worked between God and the Israelite nation. And, and as we turn to Numbers, we, we get a little bit more story. We kind of get more back into the story of what's happening to the nation of Israel and what's going on. <laughs> They're complaining again. They, they got more to complain about. We have this pattern. The people complain. God gets angry. 
Moses prays and says, come on, God, please, you know, forgive them, forgive us. And God relents. Um, just a brief survey through the Numbers story. Numbers chapter 11, the contingent wanted meats. And they complained. They said, like, back in Egypt, we, not only did we have meat, did we, have, we had cucumbers and melons and leeks. I don't like I don't think I like leeks. I'm not sure. Um, onions, garlic. They, they mention all this stuff that they had in Egypt, but they wanted meat. <clears throat> uh, chapter 14, after uh, this Canaanite uh, exploration, uh, the, the, the spies had gone into the nation of, of Canaan, and they say, why are we here to die? Number 16, there was an uprising against the leadership. Why did you bring us here? <laughs> Two times God says, get out of my way. I'm, I'm done with these people. And Moses is like, please, please have patience with us. Verses 21 and 45. And then numbers 20, they want water again. And, and again, they complain in Egypt. We had grains, we had figs, we had vines. We even had pomegranates in Egypt. And now we're out in the desert and we're stuck and there's nothing except for this manna stuff we're getting kind of sick of. Numbers 21 is the fifth and the final of what's been known as the, the grumbling passages of Israel. But this time it, it's a little different. There's a new flavor. Um, and, and in Numbers 21, the grumble against Moses turns into the grumble against Moses and God. Why? Why did you bring us on this journey? Why did you drag us down this detestable road. We don't have food. We don't have bread. We don't have water. And this manna stuff <laughs> is awful. We're tired of it. How many parents can relate? Okay. How many parents can relate? How they, I mean, you know, we love our kids. We love them desperately, but, and we feed them three times a day, every day almost, plus snacks. Um, and yeah, it can get a little monotonous, but you're fed. Behave. Be thankful. I'm not looking over here towards my sons. <laughs> but they had forgotten that manna is made from the dew of the earth, appeared on the ground with the dew each morning and provided for the nation of Israel for their needs. And they want pomegranates and cucumbers. Give us Egypt. Take us back. Send me back. I just want normal. I was in slavery, yes, but I just want what I'm used to. Sure, I was a slave. We were slaves, but I was used to it. I don't know about you, uh, but I've, learned, I've heard a lot about a return to normal recently. A return to getting back to what we're used to. Uh, I, I think I used this phrase last week, and I'm totally cool to steal it again because it's not mine. Um, but Scott Daniels says that this wandering in Egypt, the wandering in the desert by the Israelite nation, really was not so much about getting the Israelites out of Egypt as much as it was getting Egypt out of the Israelites. It's good preaching, so I'm going to say it again. The wandering in the desert by the Israelite nation was not so much about getting the Israelites out of Egypt 
as it was about getting the Egypt out of the Israelites. And you see that. You see that time and again as they grumble and as they claim and as they struggle and as they, they fight to want to go back to something that's familiar. They're always bringing Egypt up. And we see in this 40-year wandering in the desert, we see a steady shedding of Egypt and a full turnover of persons, except for the two spies that went into Canaan and said, yeah, we should go. The Lord's given this land to us. We should go in faith, believing that this is the promise of God. And, and, and so in, in, in Numbers 21, the book says, so the Lord sent poisonous snakes. The Hebrew, the Hebrew word there for poisonous uh, that, that's translated is a bit uncertain. Scholars don't really know how to translate it well. The Hebrew word being seraphim, a form of seraph, which is a more known word, which is to burn. If you look at the King James Version or the New King James Version, it says fiery serpents, not poisonous snakes. It says fiery. The C-E-B ops for poisonous. But we're, we're in the weeds here, okay? The big deal is that they're snakes, snakes yes i said the word snakes i have a word for you ophidiophobia fear of snakes are there any ophidiophobiacs out in the crowd out there okay i i can't stand them i'm not a fan of snakes um they they would make they they do make me jump um there's little kids who don't fear snakes and they like to pick them up and bring them and i say no that's it's okay Why did it have to be snakes? But I'm struck as I read these grumbling narratives that, that nearly every one of them, and, and Numbers 20 being the exception of the five that we talked about in Numbers, in each one of them, people die. And the credit, the blame, often goes to God. Talks about The, the first one talking about nauseating people with quail. It says, until the smell of quail filled their nostrils and their breath. There's another part where the ground opens up and swallows. There's another one where people are dying by plague. And now we have the fiery, poisonous snakes. There's a sense here of an Old Testament understanding and a portrayal of God as a God who delivers consequences, particularly for these people. And it's deadly. It's deadly and it's difficult. And the risk here is twofold. Uh, risk number one is as, as people with power, as, as people who, who have live pretty privileged lives, we're, we're free to worship, we're free to, to worship a God, we have freedoms, we have rights. The, risk, the, the, the first risk is that we adopt this kind of a, a rep, retribution style action as our right, that we adopt this theology that this is how God always acts. And I, and I think, I think, I think that this journey of Israel through the desert is this unique snapshot in time, this moment in time where God is protecting and purifying his people. And as difficult as, as it is to understand that 
that this is faithful to the journey of God and the people of Israel. And all of a sudden, sometimes we have God being the cause for a bunch of of heinous and evil things, and and that we turn it into our our modern understanding that, that God is a vengeful God, that God is... Is, is sending evil things. And I don't think that's a, a true representation of who God is. I think this is a unique moment in time. You see it even in the New Testament where, where this understanding of God is, as, as being harsh shows up. In the New Testament, there, there were the disciples and, and they found a, a man that was blind and and one of them says, who caused this man's blindness? Was it his own sin or the sin of his parents? John chapter 9. And Jesus corrects them and says, that's, that's, not, that's not how this thing works. But the risk there is that we understand this God is a God who's always punishing, who's always looking for, for moments in which to correct his people. The second risk is the other extreme, right? Explain it all away. Well, where's the science to this earth thing opening up? Was there a fault line? Was it an earthquake? Was it a sinkhole? We don't know. Uh, rotting meat and the sanitation or quail migratory patterns. How did, how did all this quail blow in and, and all of a sudden there were just so much meat that it was rotting all around them? Same with snakes. How did the ecosystem get out of balance so that there were all the snakes uh, that, that showed up? Where was, you know, what, what happened to their predator or what happened that, that they had so much food that they were able to, to rise up? I ask all these questions in my brain and I, and I wrestle with both of these risks, seeing it on a continuum that we can fall all the way on one side where, where God becomes this judge and arbiter and jury and convictor and punisher. Or we have this other side where God really isn't even in the picture. That Oh, there's probably a way to explain it, that this happened or that happened. And I'm not sure either way is a faithful handling of the text. What the text points us to is that there's this repeated pattern that points us in a certain direction. The people complain, fueled by this longing for normal. I just want to get back to what's usual and what's normal, even if it's not healthy, even if it wasn't great. At least we knew our role in Egypt. And God steps in, usually after Moses and Aaron plead for their lives. (laughs) God steps in, offers correction. But what's unique about this episode is that God instructs Moses to create for them this tactile presence of God's provision. This serpent becomes the representation of salvation for the people of God. Moses, fashion this serpent. This bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, raise it in the community. And I think, why didn't God just take the snakes away? That's what Moses asked for. That would have been simpler. But it got me thinking this past week as I prepared 
Sometimes the provision of God, sometimes the sustaining presence of God needs a face and needs an image. That there's something comforting in the presence of God. Barbara Brown Taylor writes, if looking up at the serpent reminded the people to lift their hearts to God, then the snake became a sacrament. What's a sacrament? A sacrament is a means of grace. What do I mean by that? It's a means, it's a way through which we receive the grace of God. That snake for the people of Israel became a sacrament, a way that they received the grace of God. As we draw these parallels to today, we're certainly in a time where we're, we're out of normal. <laughs> normal isn't, doesn't describe today. We are certainly wanting a return from the disruption of our lives. I think we have to awaken, at least to some degree, that, that our lives weren't perfect before. They weren't great. That maybe in some instances they were really unhealthy. Maybe we have something to learn. Maybe we can... return to a normal that's improved. And amidst this pandemic, uh, we've seen vitriolic discourse and demonizing of, our, of people who, who believe different, different things than we do. We've become increasingly aware of racial tension and disparity that has grown divisions over everything, over masks and face coverings and precautionary measures and vaccines and my thought was this what if the church what if the church can become today that visual representation that sacramental representation of who God is for us that visual and tactile representation of of God in our communities and in our world. I think that's what the church is called to. Not the church like the building, the church like you and me. As we walk our days, as we go into the community of Mountain Home, as we interact with our family and friends, we get to be the visual and tactile representation of the kingdom of God the people that we know and the people that we love. There's a warning attached here in the story of the bronze serpent. Do you know what happens in 2 Kings 18? Everybody's like, no. You're probably going to tell us, preacher. Yeah, I am. I can hear one of my kids say, no one knows what happens in 2 Kings 18, Dad. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Hezekiah becomes king of Judah in 2 Kings 18, and he's actually one of the good kings one of the good kings of Judah, Hezekiah, and he goes around cleansing Judah because they had returned to a bunch of unhealthy practices. That's kind of the story of Israel. Israel was created so that God would be their king, and they looked around and they said, but we don't want God as king because all these other places have kings. Give us a king. Can we have a king, God? God says, okay, here's a king. Well, kings do what kings do. And there were some good and there were some bad. Hezekiah was a good one, but each time there was a bad king, they would return to some of these, these uh, practices of worshiping other gods and setting up temples or poles in honor of, of other gods besides Yahweh. 
And, and so Hezekiah becomes king, and in 2 Kings 18, verse 4, it says this, he removed the shrines, he smashed the sacred pillars, and cut down the sacred pole, and listen to this, he crushed the bronze snake that Moses had made, because up to that point, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. The snake was name, named Nehushtan. They, they gave the snake a name. They named the bronze snake Nehushtan. I'm probably saying that wrong. I don't even know. But isn't that what we do sometimes? We're so grateful. God provides. God gives us something good. And we say, we've got to keep that. We've got to keep that around. This was hundreds of years later. And the legacy of this snake becomes an unhealthy one. The presence of God had showed up to save the Israelite people, and they say, we got to save that. And then there was the stories, and they would tell of God's provision, and all of a sudden it became an idol. The warning here for us is that as we, the church, step up to be that visual and that tactile representation of who God is, all the glory goes beyond us and straight up to the Father. The world needs the church today. The world needs us to be that representation. And it's our privilege to step into that. I'm going to ask the praise team uh, to come up. Today I'm not proposing that we commission a sculpture of a fiery snake to put up in front of our churches. You're not going to see that next week up here. Uh, or out front. Uh, what I do hope happens is that we, the church, the people of the church, not the building, that we, the church, become the physical, tangible, actual expression of the presence of God in this place, in Mountain Home, and for the world. The people are saved here from fiery and poisonous snakes, that we do life different here. There's one author that I read that, that points out in, in uh, uh, a book that was written in the times of the Old Testament but didn't become a part of, uh, of our Bible in a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. It says this, for the one who turned toward it, the bronze serpent was saved, not by the thing that was beheld, but by you the Savior of all. May we know that. May we remember that. May that be our call as we live in the world this day. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing. God, thank you for today, and thank you for your word. I pray today as we look at this, this odd text, that you would speak to us, that you would show us, reveal yourself to us again, as the God who, who saves us, God to whom we can turn and look that we don't behold a snake or a serpent or a cross or, or any object, but that we behold you. And I pray that as we as the church might become that visible, tangible expression of the grace of God that searches out each person in their lostness and in their brokenness and in our bad choices 
and in our struggles that we would say, God wants to rescue you today, just like he rescued me. Praise be to God. Help us live into that call. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We worship a good God, don't we? Amen. Would you stand to receive this morning as you're willing and able to receive the morning benediction? I invite you to extend your hands, uh, a physical representation of receiving from God this benediction this morning. Lord, make us your people, the physical, tangible expression of your love in this world. As the world looks upon us, may they see only you. Amen. Amen. Go in the love of Christ.